Welcome inside the war room. Ryan Ray here. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Ken Aletta. But first, be sure to go to warroommedia.com. Sign up for the free account to get the newsletter. Or if you want to support the show, you can do that there. This is a listener-supported supported venture, so we'd appreciate your help with that. Okay, our guest today is Ken Aletta. His book is Hollywood Ending Harvey Weinstein in the Culture of Silence. Of course, you remember this is part of the Me Too movement and you know all the stuff tied up with that. Um, so we had Ken on to talk about that in his new book. Be sure to check it out. But without further ado, let's get to the conversation I had with Ken. Ken, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you've got a pretty distinguished career. Um, but what... I guess got you onto your your most recent book about Harvey Weinstein. I had profiled Harvey Weinstein in 2002 in the New Yorker and and wrote about his both his talent and his monstrosity, particularly how he verbally abused people, sometimes also physically throwing ashtrays at them or getting a reporter in a headlock. But I came within inches and failed to nail him as a sexual predator. I had heard he had abused and raped women, but I couldn't get any woman to go on the record and acknowledge that he had done that. So I didn't, I wasn't able to report it, but I pursued that story and, and uh, on a number of occasions to try and expose him as a, as a rapist. And, and then when Ronan Farrow, um, was reporting for NBC on the story of Harvey. He came to interview me and he told me he finally broken the case. He had th three women on the record by name. He had five women on the record, but the name shielded and faces shielded. And he had the audio tape of an Italian model who claimed Harvey grabbed her breasts in 2015. But NBC, for whatever bad reason, decided to kill his story and to fire him. So I introduced him to the New Yorker and he, along with the New York Times in, in the fall of 2017, exposed Harvey Weinstein as a sexual predator. Okay, so let me get this timeline. You're in 2002, is that what you said you interviewed him? Correct. Okay, so let's go back then. Was it, um, was it just a different societal culture where maybe coming out, uh, talking about uh, these kind of crimes wasn't as conducive? Was there not enough sources? Why do you think the story couldn't get traction in 2002? Well, I think the major reason it couldn't get traction in 2002 is that the women were so fearful of Harvey Weinstein that they wouldn't talk. It wouldn't. I, I confronted Harvey at, in 2002. Did you rape Rowena Chu at the 1998 film, Venice Film Festival? He denied it. I couldn't find Rowena Chu. She was somewhere in, in Asia at the time. And the woman who was with her in bringing a claim against Harvey at the time, Zelda Perkins was in Guatemala. I tracked her down there and she refused to speak. I think what happened in 2017 is that the New York, two, two New York Times reporters who broke the story and Ronan Farrow who broke the story were able to get women to go on the record and, and acknowledge that he had abused them. And I think one of the critical things they did was to get the women to speak in a group, not individually where they were afraid to. Uh, 
and 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 I give him all the credit for accomplishing that. How powerful was Harvey Weinstein in 2002? Harvey Weinstein won in his career 81 Academy Awards. He was the most powerful and and pervasive independent movie maker whose movies included not just Shakespeare in Love, but Pulp Fiction and My Left Foot and Crying Game. The list goes on and on. He was, a, he was an immense talent. And if you were a serious actor or director and you were looking at the major studios doing these, these, these movies that you didn't want to be in, they may make you money, but they didn't advance your career as an actor or a director. Harvey Weinstein was making the kind of movies you wanted to be in. So they gravitated towards, towards Harvey. And Harvey Weinstein, despite his, his monstrous behavior, was capable of charm. And, and he had great knowledge of the movie business. So he created a community of actors and directors and screenwriters that wanted to be in his, in his realm. Could you repeat what you said there just so I'm following along? You said if he created, what kind of movies that they weren't advancing the career, but how, how did you phrase that again? Well, they were doing these blockbuster movies, you know, Spider-Man, you know, et cetera. And they, they were lend themselves to sequels. They were box office smashes, but they were not seri- a, a movie that a serious actor wanted to be in, in terms of advancing their career or, or winning an Academy Award. I got you. I got you. So they're more popcorn type movies than um, some serious uh, take on whatever. Um, Correct. So when we look at Harvey's life and his ascent, was he doing you know, malevolent things to rise to the top as well? Or was it once he had power, then he started to do these type of things? He, you know, I, I tracked his, uh, my idea was to write a different kind of a book, a biography of Harvey Weinstein, but also a biography of power and how he used and abused it. And, and one of the things I discovered in going back through his childhood Harvey in junior high school and high school, and even the first three years at university, at the University of Buffalo, Harvey, I found no evidence that he abused women. He dated infrequently. He was not someone known to abuse women. He only started to abuse women, to pick up on your phrase, when he had power. And he had power. He dropped out of college for his senior year. And he started Harvey and Corky Presents, a very prominent and very successful rock promotion, music promotion company. And they were dominant company in Western New York, upstate Western New York. And, and that's when Harvey, it, the first woman he raped that I could find was when he, was, he had that kind of power. And then as his power increased, when he went into the movie business, the incidence of him raping women also increased. Hmm. And so what is the the believed number of victims of Harvey Weinstein? Over 100 women have come forward. Now, I'm sure there may be others who have not come forward, but over 100 women have come forward and said that Harvey Weinstein physically abused me. 100, wow. And, and so thinking through this from the, the general public perspective on this, you have over 100 women, um, potentially many more. Um, that know about this. And so these stories, you're tracking it at least back as far as 2002 um, into an event into the late 90s, you said. 
these stories have to be percolating around Hollywood because it's too many people and it's a very different world Hollywood is <laughs> right so it's a very tight circle limited people um, word surely would have gotten out on some level how how was Hollywood keeping this under wraps well one reason that that my the subtitle of my book the book is called Hollywood ending and the subtitle is Harvey Weinstein and the culture of silence and what I mean by that is that that, that culture of silence was people enabled him to get away with it. People knew. Now, everyone I interviewed, and I interviewed hundreds of people for this book, they all acknowledged they knew Harvey was cheating on his wife, but they said they didn't know he was abu physically abusing women. But some of them did know he was physically abusing. And I, I recount that and show that in the book. And, and then there were lo lots of other people who should have known but maybe didn't because they didn't want to ask questions. But Harvey, Harvey understood that a key to power, his power, was fear. And he knew people had to fear him and had a fear exposing him. And, and that's one of the reasons he got away with it. So how is part of the problem here um, the morality in play? So for instance, you said a lot of people knew that Harvey was cheating on his wife and and seem to be okay with it. Um, perhaps in a Hollywood type environment, that is more of a normal behavior where, where people are cheating and there's not really uh, maybe a more um, traditional view of marriage. So is, is that kind of opening the door to where the, the world in which they're, they're living is um, a little bit more loose with how they view relationships and obviously not condoning the what he does on the, on the, on the far end of the spectrum, but Simply the fact that one producer or director, as these titles are, is cheating on his wife is might not be that surprising to, to, for people to hear. Well, there's no question that the, the term, the casting couch, mm -hmm. was invented in Hollywood. And it was very common over the many decades of Hollywood's life that powerful men, be they directors or studio heads or, or senior executives or actors, uh, got young women to comply with their sexual desires. There is, however, a distinction between casting couch and raping women. Harvey was raping women, that was an extremist. The other thing that's worth noting, I think, is that how Hollywood is different than most other businesses. Hollywood is a world where attractive young women work in close proximity to powerful men. And inevitably, as those young women who want to be in the movie business or want to get ahead in their life, and, and they're working side by side with, with these powerful men, and they say to them, oh, Harvey Weinstein, you, your speech was wonderful. Harvey Weinstein, I love your movies. Or you're so talented, whatever. It is, very, it is not uncommon, I think, for these powerful men to confuse a compliment with a come on. And, and, and therefore take advantage of those women. And, and I think that, that happened, but Harvey's behavior is so extreme as to make it different. Yeah, I mean, you think about this boss culture and you know, when the boss makes a joke, everyone has to laugh because that's the boss. And so you can see how um, signals can get mixed in a lot of ways, uh, especially in um, an environment like that where, yeah, you're trying to, you know, get your big shot on the, on the big screen. So you mentioned earlier 
that there was a, um, a chance to take this story to NBC and they killed it. Um, so, I mean, is this, should, what should that say about us? Because if you think back to when the Jeffrey Epstein stuff broke, I think it was ABC had a reporter saying that she had a story about that and they squashed that story. I don't know all the details behind it, but I remember her on a hot mic moment bemoaning the fact that she couldn't break the story. Now you're saying that NBC killed the Weinstein story. Um, is the larger media outlets afraid, complicit, in denial? How do we, how do we reconcile that? Well, I, I report in the book about NBC's decision to kill the Weinstein expose by Ronan Farrow. And what I learned from that is that Ronan Farrow had this story. He told me he had three women on camera saying Harvey attempted to rape them or did rape them. He had five women on camera, but their names and faces shielded saying the same. And he had a an audio tape of the Italian model who claimed Harvey grabbed her breasts in 2015. And so why didn't NBC run the story. When I went to NBC to re while reporting the book, they said, well, Ronan didn't have that when he was here. He only had that information after he went to The New Yorker. I then went to The New Yorker in my reporting to the editor who edited Ronan Farrow. And I said, tell me what Ronan Farrow brought to you when he came to you in August, 2017. And Deirdre said to me that he brought three women who were on camera by name. He brought five women who were unnamed that claimed the same thing that Harvey abused them. And he brought the audio tape Italian model, all of which Ronan said to me when, I, when he interviewed me in June. So I then call up and or meet with NBC to find out. And one of the things I learned, NBC didn't admit this, but I, I learned that Harvey Weinstein learned in late July almost 10 days before Ronan Farrow lied, that NBC had killed his story. So they told Harvey Weinstein, the story is dead, Harvey, don't worry. Before they told Ronan Farrow, we're not running your story. And by the way, you're fired. That's pretty shocking, yeah. I thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is shocking. I, I think in 2022, perhaps it's not as shocking as maybe it was, you know, um, five, 10, 15 years ago, I think this, this brings larger questions about how, you know, how, how do we as citizens um, watching NBC, ABC, whoever it might be, um, how do we trust them if, if they're not willing to go and do the real work, the hard work, the dangerous work, if you will, that might actually put their credibility on the line? How do we trust them if they can't, if they won't put these stories out there? Well, some won't, and NBC failed that test. The New York Times didn't fail that test. The New Yorker didn't fail that test. And the press since didn't fail that test in, in writing about Harvey. So the, the, the basic question underlying what you're saying is did, did the press know before NBC or simultaneously that Harvey was, was abusing women this way? I mean, I thought I knew in 2002 but I couldn't prove it without the woman to acknowledge. I, I went to Harvey, he denied it. And I didn't have any woman claiming otherwise. So we had to make a decision at the New Yorker and the editor made this decision with my support that we're not the National Enquirer. We can't print conjectural stories. We've confronted him, he denies it. And we have no woman saying affirming it. 
So how do we run the story? We couldn't. And so one of the problems with, with good journalism is you want to be sure you can prove things. And if you can't, you, you shouldn't be running it. How do you, as a journalist, build the trust with these women or people in this situation to trust you to tell these stories? Well, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, these women were so afraid of Harvey, and and you know, by the way, they didn't speak not just out of fear uh, to disclose that uh, you know and overcome their fears of Harvey and what he would do with their career, but in the trial which I covered every day of Harvey Weinstein, the criminal trial in in 2020, one of the the weakness of the prosecution case was how come these women after Harvey abused them, some of them continued to keep in touch with him. So Harvey's claim then, Harvey Weinstein's claim was that they kept in touch because my sex with them was consensual. They wanted to have sex with me. I didn't abuse them. So the prosecution had to overcome that obstacle. And one of the things that came out in the trial to explain why women did not come forward was that some were in denial that it ever happened. Some blame themselves saying, maybe I gave him a signal that it was okay to have sex with me and I shouldn't have. Some were obviously fearful. Some were afraid of, of loved ones knowing about it and, 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 and people in their family knowing that, that they had been raped or abused by Harvey Weinstein. And they called to the stand, the prosecution in the criminal trial in New York, they called to the stand Dr. Barbara Ziv, who is an expert on rape a professor at Temple University in, in Pennsylvania. And she cited an amazing fact that just was like a punch in the nose to the press and to the jury. She said that 40% of women in America who are raped continue to have relationships with the person who raped them. That's a stunning fact. And they do it for all those reasons I, I cited before. So it, it helps explain why women kept quiet, but it also explains why it was such an effective technique to get them to come forward and speak about what Harvey had done to them, to get them to do it in a group and not individually where they were more afraid. 40%, is that what you said? 40%. Wow, that's a stunning number. I agree. I mean, wow, I never would have, I mean, I've never thought about it, of course. Um, but if I would have, I would have guessed very low, and those would have been all because they were forced to continue, or whatever the number was, they'd been because they're forced to continue. But as you unpack the various reasons, it's like, yeah, that's uh, okay. So, yeah, I guess just thinking through this, then the people around Harvey, um, the ones who should have known, going just to that category, I guess part of their defense would be is just to put a 40% number on this 40% of these women. We're continuing to engage with Harvey. Therefore, they didn't think anything was wrong. That may be in some cases, but there were people who worked for Harvey. Let me tell you a story, for instance. Hmm. Uh, a woman by the name of Hillary, uh, and this is in my book, her story. She comes for an interview at Harvey Weinstein's Merrimax company in the late 90s. And she rides up in the elevator and Harvey Weinstein happens to be in this tiny elevator with her. And he says, who are you? 
And she said, well, I'm, I'm here for a job interview with the head of human resources at Miramax. He said, come and see me after you're done. She was a very attractive woman. So he, he was eyeing her. Uh, she goes and has an interview with the human resources head. And, and she says to him, Mr. Weinstein said he'd like to see me. So she treks down to Harvey's office with the head of human resources. She walks in and Harvey says to her, how'd it go? She said, it was a very good interview, thank you. And he, without consulting the human resources head, points to her and says, you're hired. So she was all excited. She's gonna have a job at Miramax. She then takes a long planned vacation for three weeks before she's to start work. And the day before she's to start work, she gets a call from someone at human resources at Miramax saying, Hillary, we'd like to take you out for a drink to welcome you. And she says, great. And she's all excited. She thinks, what a wonderful place this is going to be to work at, creating this sense of community and, and with me. She goes for drinks with four members of, of who worked at, at Miramax, human resources executive, two other executives, and one of four assistants who worked directly for Harvey Weinstein. And instead of being a welcoming, smiles, laughing, drinks, they say to her, Hillary, don't come to work here. Harvey will rape you. Now, and she didn't come to work there. She, wow. she, she decided not to. Well, if four people, including only one of whom worked directly for Harvey, knew that he was raping women, you have to extrapolate from that, that, that other people who worked at Miramax knew, and maybe people who didn't work at Miramax also knew. And, and what year was, was that again? This was in the late 90s. The late 90s. So you have four people who are working for Harvey. I mean, you know, to tell a woman to don't come to work at this company because the boss will rape you. I mean, it, it's, a, it's just, just a stunning thing to say. It's not as if you've left the company and you're saying, hey, don't go work there because that dude will take advantage of you. You're actively employed and you're saying like, did was there thoughts of charging those people as being some sort of accessory to these crimes? Well, I mean, no, I don't think there was, but, but you certainly wonder. They are complicit. I mean, why did why they continue to work there? Why didn't they go to the authorities? Why, by the way, Harvey Weinstein was raping women in the mid 70s, starting in the mid 70s. Why is it that, that the first time the police were ever called by a woman didn't take place in 2015, until 2015? So he was never exposed in all those years. No one ever went to the police. They were afraid to. I mean, I, the first woman he raped, uh, Hope DeMoore, who I interviewed, uh, she was an assistant of his at Harvey and Corky Presents in Western New York. Uh, and, and I said, Hope, why did you not go to the police? And she says, Miss Oletta, he, he had a, a concert promotion business. All the police in Buffalo, the city where he, that he was located, they worked part-time at nights on Harvey Weinstein's concerts. He had a relationship with them. And the press, he was a major advertiser in the, in the Buffalo, two Buffalo newspapers. I didn't feel if I went to the police or the press, that I, I would get any compliance, I would get any help. And so when you see the, the rise of the, 
of the Me Too movement, it's stories like that, that kind of, and then the, you know, during that period of time when these stories were coming out, uh, there was a push on social media, at least about believing all women. And I think part of what you're describing here is, is a backdrop to women who felt for so long that they couldn't be believed um, because of their, their place in society. No question about that. Um, the, you know, Me Too, the Me Too movement got a major boost in October of 2017 when Harvey Weinstein was exposed. And after that, you know, a series of other people who had abused women were revealed. Um, but Me Too owes some of its success to Harvey Weinstein. And the outrage that that his behavior provoked. So going back to those those four people um, that knew and and the the rest of you know people as you extrapolated out as you said, when you're going through writing this book, were, how many people were there? A number of people who, you know, would say, "Yeah, listen, I, I heard rumors, but you know, I don't want to talk about it because you know I didn't do anything." Did you come across a lot of people like that who? who said that they knew or suspected, but didn't want to talk about it. No, you don't find, they, they would not say I knew. They, they might say I suspected, uh, but they would all, those people would say, I'll, I'll talk to you, but I don't want to be quoted by name. And, and you would ask, why don't you want to be quoted by name? And they basically said to me something similar, which is, I don't want people to know I work for this monster Harvey Weinstein. It would hurt my career. Who do you think or has anyone come out and handled the fallout around Weinstein well? Someone who was close to him, who should have known, did know. Um, has, there, has there been a figure who comes out and goes, yeah, listen, this was handled very poorly? Well, there are, there are a couple of people in my book who, who I think behave heroically. One is... A fellow by the lead independent director at Harvey's Weinstein's company, which was then the Weinstein Company, and, and between 2014 and 2017, he took the lead opposing the board, which defended Harvey, in, in trying to get a hold of Harvey's personnel records because he believed they might show that he was abusing women. And, and, and paying for non-disclosure agreements. Maybe the company was paying for those non-disclosure agreements and he wanted to find out. And Harvey and he were at loggerheads all through that. In the end, he successfully, uh, with Harvey Weinstein's brother, Bob's support, fired Harvey Weinstein in October, 2017. So Lance Marf was, was someone who, who, who behaved, I think, admirably. Another one person, among others who behaved admirably, was a woman by the name of Zelda Perkins. Zelda Perkins was Harvey's London assistant. When Rowena Chu, when Harvey attempted to rape, and by the way, I learned later when I interviewed Rowena Chu, that if I had printed the story as was told to me in 2002, I would have printed that Rowena Chu was raped by Harvey. She was not, he attempted to rape her and she escaped. But nevertheless, Zelda Perkins was her boss and Zelda Perkins came to her defense, said, we have to sue Harvey uh, in this case. And she, after, she not only spoke to the press who divulged the story, but to me as well, but she has testified before parliament in London. 
saying that non-disclosure agreements, which she signed it as did Rowena Chu and as did dozens of other women with Harvey, where he would pay them for, for their silence, should be illegal, she said. And she's been on a campaign to make them illegal. She, she, and, and she's very insightful about the behavior of monsters like Harvey Weinstein. So I, I would put her in that category that I put Lance Morrow. So she's trying to get, you know, if, if um, in this case, Harvey rapes someone, he gets them to sign an NDA, she's saying that that's not a valid NDA or she wants it to be that way. She doesn't want him to be able to do that. See, one of the things I discovered is that reported in, in 2002, I, I, tr I went to the courts in, in the United States and the courts in England to find it, the NDAs, because I thought if I could find them, I could have proof that this took place. And I wondered how come there were no NDA reports, nothing in, in England or the United States. And that's when I realized what Harvey Weinstein did. If a woman brought a claim against him as Rowena Chu and Rowena Chu and, and Zelda Perkins did in 98, what he would do, he would come to, his lawyer would go to them and say, look, we will pay you X dollars if you sign this non-disclosure agreement and don't say anything. And if, if you don't sign it, you're gonna be in a lawsuit against us and you can't afford to be in a lawsuit against us. And so they sign it. What that meant is that the document, the NDA, stays in the lawyer's office. It never gets to the court. It's not a public document, it's a private document. And by the way, the women are not given copies of it. So the reason I couldn't find the NDAs is they were locked up in Harvey's lawyer's office. Perhaps that might be a, uh, a, a better step is to make them be required to be recorded because then you'd have to, to be valid. You'd have to record all these NDAs. And so <laughs> that would put a lot of pressure on you. Cause if you start recording NDA with woman after woman, after woman, after woman, you know, people are going to go, Whoa, Whoa, what's, what's going on here. It'd be a real problem for someone like Harvey because he, he then it, the whole purpose of him agreeing to an NDA is that he was, it was risk-free, mm. but the risk would be there if, if we were going to, possibly becoming a public document. Mm. So let's unpack a little bit about the role, if there is any, from your perspective of social media, YouTube, TikTok, you know, whatever, Instagram. You know, going back to the 70s, if you wanted to be famous, there was really one path primarily um, through Hollywood. I, I guess you could be a you know national radio broadcast host or something like that in New York. But, but you know, the movies, TV, that's all Hollywood. By 2015, you have internet culture where there are other paths and independent movies are being made at a higher clip probably than ever before. Um, do you think that these, while Hollywood still has the lion's share of the power and the, and the ability to create stars, do you think that um, some of that kicking against the system, decentralization of power opened up the door uh, to prime the pump, if you will, to break some of this cultural silence? It might have, and it might in the future. There's no question that, that in the wake of Harvey Weinstein's exposure, men are much more self-aware of the risk of abusing women. Now, whether that's a short-term success or a long-term success, the jury's still out. We don't know whether the culture of Hollywood would change. But there's no question that Hollywood itself is changing. 
The weakness of movie theaters, for instance, for the reasons you've described, is palpable. And, and, and whether they can come back um, or whether the streaming services are the, are the future, and even the streaming service, Netflix is, is undergoing some financial difficulties and now has agreed to, to do something they said they would never agree to, which is run ads on, on Netflix. So, you know, there are big changes still taking place and, and, and they will continue to make changes. And, and, and as those changes take place, the, the, the way Hollywood works will also change. You're not gonna have the big paydays for actors in the future, uh, the way you've had in the past, for instance. What do we make of, or should we make of anything of a people's um, desire to become famous, um, their willingness to, in some cases, compromise, and then in some cases, use the power like Harvey Weinstein did to, to, um, to subject people to, to rape and terrible things. As a society, how do we talk about fame, um, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, uh, and, and the, the perils around it? Uh, you know, it, it's, if I understand the question, you, you, might, you might reframe that for me, Ryan. Yeah, so I mean, I think about this story, Harvey Weinstein, um, and just the, uh, you know, the ascent to power. We've talked about the negative side, which is Harvey Weinstein raping women. Uh, you also mentioned the casting couch, which is consensual. Um, and, and so there's a pro, and then I'm sure there's people who can skirt all that and do it um, you know, without having to get involved in those things. It, it seems that there are dangers around this quest to be famous, um, maybe more so than in, in a traditional job. Should we talk about that more as a society that, hey, listen, if you're going to go be in this Hollywood realm, trying to be a star, um, there are potential pitfalls that you had to watch out for. Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, even, you know, the, the casting couch, when you say it was consensual, it was also coercive. I mean, <laughs> those women were not, you know, many of them didn't want to have sex with those men, but it was a career advancement move. Uh, but that's coercive. I mean, it, it, if it's not volunteered, um, and but there's no, you know, actually, you can make an argument. I think that social media places more of a premium on on on, on making it easy for people to to search out to become famous and 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 be and behave in ways that you know you find you know why why you being an exhibitionist that way. You know, why are you doing that? But it, everyone has their, their 15 minutes of potential fame now. It, it's democratized fame. Mm. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not saying that all casting couches uh, were, were on the up and up. Um, I'm just saying that there's, yeah, yeah. Because, well, in 2022, you know, you got to, you want to you clarify everything. Okay, what was your biggest lesson that you learned or biggest thing that you uncovered writing this book that you didn't expect to find going into it? that um, a couple of things. One is that if you go back into Harvey's childhood and talk to people who grew up with him and were his friends, the influence of his mother, Miriam, was a surprise to me. She was a very dominant person. Um, she yelled all the time, as Harvey yelled all the time in his office. I mean, she normalized yelling 
behavior. And the yelling was so pronounced that, that his friends, they played poker at a different house every weekend, but they refused to play poker at Harvey's house. Why? Because his friends said Miriam yelled all the time. It was too uncomfortable to be there. So that was a surprise. The other surprise is, is the relationship between Harvey and his best friend, his brother, Bob, who was two years younger than he. And, and they were business partners, equal business partners. They talked five times a day. They were, they were dominant forces in, in the movie business together. And yet in the end, Harvey in 2015 sucker punches his brother Bob breaking his nose. In the end, in, in the fall of 2017, Bob sides with Lance Murrow and, and, and they vote to fire Harvey Weinstein after he was exposed. So the dynamics of that relationship over 60 some odd years between the Weinstein brothers is, is one that was fascinating and a surprise to me. It was Shakespearean. What's the one question that you wish you could have had answered uh, that you couldn't get answered right in this book? I, I you know, in the end, um, I had, I had all the tapes of my interviews with Harvey for the New Yorker in 2002, which I use anything up, up to 2002. I had Harvey's voice on, on a number of things. But from prison, we had email exchanges and he agreed to talk to me knowing I'm doing a biography. And so I have 25 or so email exchanges with him, which are recounted in the book. But one of the questions I asked him, which he didn't answer, which goes to the heart of your question. I wanted to ask, and I did ask and he didn't answer, Harvey, after you raped, let's say Jessica Mann, who was a principal witness against him in the New York criminal trial. After you raped Jessica Mann and you put your head on a pillow at night, how did you explain to yourself what you had just done? Of course, he never answered that. I suspect if he had answered it, he would have said it was a trade. She wanted something from me, a career in the movie business, and I wanted something from this beautiful woman, sex. It was fair exchange. She, she willingly made that. It was consensual. Final question here for me. How do we go about, um, you've covered this story in depth. You've you know, dealt with the, the brutality of this. And, and also I'm sure there's a lot of times where you're trying to uncover what the truth is. How do you, how should we go about discerning these stories when it's not obvious? It, it's a little bit more, he said, she said, who is telling the truth? What, what advice would you give to just the average person when trying to figure out who is being the honest party in these situations? Boy, it can be tough. I, I, you know, I saw that at the trial every day where these women would testify and Harvey's lawyers would challenge them. They would say he raped me and, and Harvey's lawyers would say, no, it was consensual. She wanted a relationship with Harvey. Uh, it, it, there's no substitute for asking questions again and again and again. And, and if you can find a witness, someone who, an independent who could confirm or deny something, that's valuable. But some things, you know, reporters can't get answers to. Sometimes you're going to be stymied where you're going to be. I mean, it happened to me in 2002. I confront Harvey Weinstein and he denies that he, that he abused Rowena Chu. 
I then can't find Rowena Chu and I can't get Zelda Perkins, who is a witness, to, to speak. So that, that's your question writ large right there. I'm stymied as a reporter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we're going to link to the book in the show notes, uh, your website, anywhere else you want us to send people to. No, it's, you know, my website, just the bookstore and or Amazon. The book is available in both. All right. Well, Ken, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed this. Thank you, Ryan. Enjoyed it. Okay. There it is. Harvey's a monster, right? Okay. Go to warroommedia.com, sign up for the free version of the newsletter to get all of the episodes right there in your inbox, and we'll talk soon.